0: This episode of Ministry Monday is brought to you by One License. Now is a wonderful time to take advantage of One License's single use and event licenses for the Easter, Confirmation, and Graduation seasons. If you plan to use copyrighted music in your Triduum worship services or for an upcoming Confirmation or Graduation service, a single use or event license can be a great fit especially for those who do not already participate in an annual reprint license. These licenses can also be bundled with our podcast streaming license. Learn more about your licensing options at www.1license.net. From NPM, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, this is Episode 218 of Ministry Monday. Ministry Monday is a weekly podcast about music, ministry, and liturgy, produced by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, or NPM. What is NPM? NPM is a national association that fosters the art of musical liturgy. The members of NPM serve the Catholic Church in the United States as musicians, clergy, liturgists, and other leaders of prayer. For more information, go to npm.org forward slash join. Have a question? Email us anytime at ministrymonday at npm.org. Hello and welcome to Ministry Monday. I am your host, Amanda Bruce. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to Ministry Monday, wherever you listen to your podcasts each week, and hey, thanks for joining us. The marriage of melody to text is the essence of hymnody at its core. Both play a critical part in a hymn's efficacy both in conveying a message and encouraging full participation by the worshiping assembly singing it. Today, we focus on the text of a hymn. What is the genesis of a hymn text? How important is the relationship to text and a common hymn tune? What are some of the things we as composers or we as pastoral ministers need to listen for? Alan Hommerding shares his reflections today on text writing and the power of words we can utilize by simply singing a hymn. Today on Ministry Monday, I am speaking with Alan Hommerding. Hi, Alan. How are you today?
1: Hello, Amanda. I'm fine. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for your time and your expertise in advance on the power of words. So that was the topic that I, I've had on my mind for a while, and your name just kept coming back to talk about with me. So thank you for being willing to talk about this with me.
1: Mm, great, great, love it.
0: So let's start. Of course, the reason that your name came to mind is that you, one of your many charisms, is that you excel in hymn texts. If is that okay to say? Is that a safe assumption?
1: Well, I'm. Um personally not comfortable with excel but that's more my baggage than it is an (laughs) inaccuracy on your part okay (laughs) I believe I believe so yeah let's go with that
0: (laughs) okay okay yeah so I mean you you one of the things that I have always admired about your work is that you have a depth of knowledge and a depth of hymn text that you have written to adapt to hymns themselves and so I want to talk a little bit about the power of that relationship today that I believe makes for a nuanced and complex but powerful hymnody in our faith and in our our singing singing relationship as, as a church so I'd like to start with just a simple question but it's not simple but I think it's a great place to start is what do you believe is the relationship between melody and text?
1: Well, I'd like to think of a quote from the French composer, Francis Poulenc, who said, music and words must be in a happy union, not a marriage of convenience. So I guess my aspiration is always to be seeking that that happy union, not merely a uh, we have the right number of syllables, and we have the right number of note heads, let's go. Um, The the other relationship I, I have found, and I will say this has really come much more into focus for me the past couple of years, I read a book called Hermeneutics of Hymnody, and I don't think it's going to be made into a movie, so you probably will need to read it if you <laughs> if you're really interested. But uh, Scotty Gray, the author, spends a whole chapter on the sound of words. So words have their own sonics before they are ever set to music. Now I always said that I prefer. When other composers, I do write music, but when it comes to my hymn texts, I prefer other composers to, to write tunes for them because I enjoy hearing what music somebody else finds in them. But I've become increasingly convinced that as an author, it's my duty to be aware of the sonics of the words I have written and that those words have their own music before they are paired with music or before somebody writes music for them or in the very, very rare instance where, I mean, I've had a couple composers send me a tune and say, "I, I thought I could write a text for this, but I haven't been able to. Do you want to take a try? And, you know, I've done that a couple times, but, you know, usually I really try to listen for the music that's in the words uh, prior to their relationship with actual music notation. And so if the, the sonics of the words are strong, and then it's paired with a strong hymn tune or somebody crafts a strong new melody, then we have you know, strength on strength to to go there. And that to to me is really the, the ultimate goal uh, that we're looking for when we pair up words and music.
0: What constitutes that strength in the word and that, that sonic strength <laughs> that you're going after? Yeah.
1: Well oh, I I'll I'll just let you know that right now I'm flashing back to the first day of first semester preaching when I was in seminary and the professor said there are three rules for good preaching you know we all started writing in our notebooks in the olden days that's what we did we all wrote in our (laughs) notebooks three three rules for good preaching and then she said unfortunately nobody knows what they are um so the the question you asked is landing us uh, right in the middle of that usually elusive area between the, the craft and the art. So what constitutes good sonics? Um, I will always say that the ear is the final judge of that. And so when I work with uh, new authors or even um, veteran authors, I'll say, Um, I just tell them uh, to make sure that the words get out in the air, because that's where they're going to live eventually. So even if you just sing your new text on a single note, you'll find things that might trip up somebody in the assembly. Um, You know, so is it, uh, this just came up in a text I'm working on about saint benedict and it was like should it be each oh yeah each saint or all saints so to go from that double l of all to the s of saints is a little less clumsy in the mouth than each saint uh the the of course it can be done and uh Not anybody who's singing that hymn on a Sunday will uh, be thinking about it at that granular level. But I think that's my job, my responsibility, to really make sure that uh, uh, these words don't have their final home on the page. They have their final home in the air. So whenever I'm working on a text, and this is what I tell uh, people writing tunes for my words, or people trying to work on their own texts, is like your words have to get out in the air. You cannot, you cannot have a good or accurate perception of them until they are out there.
0: And when someone writing these texts does that and spends that intentional time with the text what do you believe is the impact when sung congregationally
1: well i uh, nothing else just the the ease of not having to have uh, clusters of consonants falling over one another (laughs) um you know that helps um But then there are, you know, on the flip side, if you do something intentional, like alliteration, um, I recently have been reading Bill Moyer's Moyer's book, uh, Fooling Around with Words. He interviews six different poets, and one poet uses the word echoic, echo with an I-C at the end. And a, a more technical term for that might be assonance words that have some sonic relationship um in one of my texts I put the word mission and future in in that kind of pairing but the just the the base sounds of those two words kind of echo each other so um it's not only rhyme it's not only the regular pattern of meter that people, uh, latch onto, our, our brains are wired to seek out patterns and to respond to and to recognize patterns. This, I think, is one of the great gifts of hymnody. Uh, you know, people will sometimes say, well, yes, especially for children. I'm like, no, for everybody. Um, and, you know, especially in the, the world we live in, we have such a barrage of words coming at us all the time. So when you encounter words in a hymn that that echo each other or rhyme with each other or are in patterns with each other, that is something you're not conscious of it or aware of it, but that is something your brain responds to, and it's the thing that helps us retain. This is why we teach kids the ABCs with a rhyming folk melody, twinkle, twinkle, you know. Uh, it, it's the the way we're wired. So it, being conscious of this sort of thing when you're crafting a text, again, that uh, there will be people who dismiss this, you know, because it's, you know, it's all about the spirit and the feeling, you know, and, and all of that. And uh, like we were made in the image of God, you know, God did this. So why not uh, celebrate that gift? and be aware of it and respond to it and and work so that people can can utilize it the way uh it was intended
0: do you when crafting your text do you ever first look at a hymn tune that you wanted to use or do you look at the text first
1: it's a two-part answer um uh the, the first part of the answer is, yes, I used to. And now the answer is only if it's a part of a commission that uh, people say, well, we want to sing this to Amazing Grace or whatever, whatever the tune might be then, yeah, I I definitely spend time with the tune by itself. And again, I won't put the sonics of any words with it. I will just, I might play it on my flute. I might line it out on the keyboard in a very high register, in a very low register, to sort of explore it and and get to know it a little bit better. So, yeah, I I do take that into consideration if I am writing a text for an existing tune. Part 2A of the second part of my answer (laughs) is is that I totally get the practicality of writing new texts to fit a tune that people already know that already have in their hearts and you know especially when people have written text to respond to a, a crisis or some sort of disaster you know I completely get that when people are seeking comfort or they're trying to express lament they don't want to be working to learn a new melody that it's much easier to to just sing the new words with what's already in their hearts I get that But I think there's a danger that we are, as I like to put it, we are launching an increasing number of hymn texts into a vanishing pool of hymn tunes, or I guess evaporating pool would be a more correct analogy. And also, you know, I have some composer friends who say they've just given up writing writing new hymn tunes because, you know, everybody wants to sing Nettleton or Beach Spring yet again. And, you know, and I don't blame them. So um, I do on occasion get a little, I don't know, smart-alecky. And I will, if I've not been given a specific instruction that, you know, this should fit to... Amazing Grace or whatever, I I will write in what older hymnals call peculiar meter, uh, one of a kind or irregular, uh, so that it has to go to a composer. And to me, that's also a little bit the work of uh, allowing a little bit more of the spirit into the world. You know, whenever we uh, empower a composer to craft a new melody for people to sing. We've helped a little bit more of the Holy Spirit come into the world as well. Do not quench the spirit, Saint Paul says.
0: Speaking of not quenching the spirit, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is a bit of a practical application for a hymn text, whether it's yours or anyone else's. Um, If someone is listening to this and they are a cantor in particular, or I would even say a pianist or organist. Um, How can we as music ministers add subtle artistry to the text using maybe commas or phrasing to lengthen or move through a phrase when maybe by instinct, we may want to breathe, but maybe we want Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. honor the punctuation that is there. How can we do that?
1: Well, that's uh, to me, that's always a balancing act, especially if you're dealing with a strophic hymn that's being sung by a whole congregation. Um, part of your job is to lead, part of your job is to support, and anybody who knows uh, the art of being a cantor <laughs> knows how uh, tricky that balance can be. I I think that's uh, an instance where in the case of strophic hymnody, you can lead by example, and you know when you when you prepare something on your own time, uh, to really pay attention to the commas, to the punctuation. Um, some pla- some places, especially uh, texts that are with folk melodies, don't always, and again, particularly the interior verses, sometimes will. Be the place where the not quite hundred percent comfortable <laughs> alignment is. So you know to spend some time with that, and you know look for the word stresses, and not not always put the word stress on the you know where where the the, the melody is. That's uh, in hymnody. That's a leading by example thing. And I also think that if you're doing responsorial sponsorial psalmody or you know, verses for a communion processional song. if you're doing it with that kind of care, again, you are leading by example. And you know, and again, nobody goes to brunch after Sunday Mass saying, you know, we really need to be more careful about matching our breathing and the punctuation and you know the placement of the accent within the melodic line. The, the way the cantor does. I mean, nobody, nobody goes, nobody goes to to brunch saying that they say I'm going to have extra bacon. That, that's, that's that's what I say at brunch, um, you know. But I, I think that's a, a much more subtle uh, leading by example thing. That th- this is when you are singing God's praise with care. This mm-hmm. is how you do it.
0: When it comes to hymn texts, and I'll just say lately, what inspires you as you write hymn texts?
1: I I just have to, (laughs) I'll start with my my confession that my kind of jokey answer to that is uh, don't discount the possibility that a commission and a stipend can't be inspiring. Um, (laughs) So, you know, now that we have that out of the way, (laughs) um you know inspiration comes from many many places my most frequent place of inspiration uh, comes from when I learn of or perceive or see a catechetical need I said this about myself written this about myself a number of times as a hymn writer or a text writer I'm mostly a catechist with a rhyming dictionary. Mm. You know, there are other people who are far more poetic. There are other people who rhyme way better than I do. It's uh, not my gift, um, which is why I know all the best uh, websites for rhyming. Uh, (laughs) You know, other, other people are just really, really terrific in being that essential voice of prophetic witness and calling us to mercy and justice. You know, there there are people who really have those gifts. um, And, you know, and I try to include all those things as much as I can in my own work. But, you know, a hymn like um, From Ashes to the Living Font," the Lenten hymn, is, I think, uh, a good example of where I enter in a spirit of inspiration. So that uh, him, which was a commission by the way, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, and it was an uh, RCIA director who commissioned it, who wanted something to teach about the season of Lent, that Lent is primarily baptismal the way the general norms of the liturgical year and calendar say that it is. A hymn that would express that, that would connect to the Gospels of the season, that would lead to the empty tomb and the resurrection and ultimately have its destiny on Pentecost. That was laid out as the catechetical task of that hymn, and that is the sort of thing that I, I respond to very, very well. I have uh, a few times uh, actually been inspired by preaching. Uh, there are a few texts that have uh, come into the world that way. Um, but uh, I, I would say for, for me, you know, aside from, you know, somebody, um, the Diocese of Oklahoma City asked for a hymn text for uh, Stanley Rother, who's uh, going to be a newly canonized saint. Uh, he was a martyr in Central America, I believe. You know, so, so you know, reading about his life, of course, and his witness and his martyrdom was very, very inspiring. So, you know, something like that. Uh, working on a hymn text. Uh, about saint benedict right now and so of course reading the sources about him uh, i did not know um the that the saying uh, the sacred cross is my light i i never knew that uh, phrase in connection with benedict so in addition to that occurring within that new hymn text there may be a whole separate the cross is my light the cross is our light there may be another whole text on that subject coming down the road. Yeah, Beati Creator Spiritus, huh?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A, a practical application question again: If someone is listening who is planning music for the upcoming Lent and Easter seasons, and they want to be more intentional with the two, the, the tunes, and especially the text that they pick, what should we look for in terms of text?
1: Well, uh, again, you know, as I said already uh, lent is primarily a baptismal season secondarily penitential it's you know it's a both and but you know the the texts that have anything to do with uh, our baptismal call that you know vocation you know of course not ones that have an Alleluia in them but um you know to to look for those things uh, and we are in year A we are yes yeah we are i'm, I'm sorry when you're a liturgical products editor you're sometimes living in in, 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 in a one different year liturgical and, year and, and we're and working in a different liturgical year and sometimes in two uh, different liturgical <laughs> years at once so we are in year A so you know you have those beautiful uh, john gospels coming up so really really start looking for the uh, water and the thirst and the light and the vision and you know the the life and you know the 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 lower s spirit that you know instills life in everything um it's also it i believe I work in both the Revised Common Lectionary and the Roman Catholic, but I believe A is also, it's the year, the Genesis year in the Roman Catholic Lectionary as well. So you start out with that, you know, that story in Eden. And so I always suggest because it's there that God creates us. He creates Adam, the man, by breathing into a lump of clay. You know, the thing that gives us the divine life is breath. You know, so start, you know, just very broadly looking for the 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 breathing, the creation, the again, the water, the light, the life. Start looking for those very, very broad, broad topics and then you know start to to narrow it down.
0: My last question that I have for you actually looks a little bit past that and a little bit further because you are scheduled to present at NPM's convention this summer. Mm
2: -hmm. I hope
0: that's not a surprise whenever I say that.
1: No, it's not a surprise.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So- um, Although, you know,
1: in in terms of missed opportunity, I I just really should have done my what? Yeah. 'm I'm, I'm, I'm aware
0: of it <laughs> good. So you, yeah good you're scheduled to present a session called Singing the Saints with J. Michael Thompson um can you briefly give us an idea of what that will be about and what we can expect
1: well to be a hundred percent honest um, you know Jay Michael Thompson is really the guy um, <laughs> on this you know he. He wrote the compendium of uh, a hymn for every saint on the United States Roman Rite calendar. Uh, I've done some of my own uh, writing of uh, saint hymns. You know, one for the martyr Stanley Rother, one in process now for Saint Benedict. I've done some of that uh, as well. I think I will be there. As much uh, to you know, talk about my work as the editor on his saints collection, as much as anything else, and you know some considerations um, like uh, when we were working on the text for Maria Goretti, um, whose story has traditionally been told you know how she valiantly resisted her roman attackers who you know wanted to rob her of her purity and all of this and some of the the writing around maria Goretti, um sounds a little bit to uh, contemporary ears like victim blaming you know that uh There was nothing wrong. I I think it was Roman soldiers. My apologies if I don't have the hagiography correct. Um, But, uh, you know, so there was almost a sense of victim blaming in some of the Maria Goretti sources. And, you know, it's like, well, and what, you know, what could these poor soldiers do? She was this beautiful young woman, and, you know, they were, you know, just, well, soldiers, you know. You know, so. How to uh, put a, a, a lens on that? You know, saying that really what makes her holy is her her bravery in facing this evil. You know, this this you know this evil that was there and. Threatening her with violence, you know, and, and just how her faith, how her faith bolstered her to the de- degree that she remained brave in the face of that most horrific of evils, you know. So, yeah, to to take what we inherit about the saints and then try to present it again or anew temporary singers and you know and I think in the past couple years um, uh, I'll just say a victim blaming text about Maria Goretti would have been poorly received and rightly so uh, as we've come to learn you know how many abuse victims there are in the congregation you know Uh, so you know and that's you know, probably one of the more extreme examples, uh, you know, but um, I believe St. Catherine of Alexandria who tended cancer patients and I believe uh, the legend or story of her, of her, you know, virtuous uh, acts of charity, uh, you know, talked about her drinking the water that she used to bathe the cancer patients, you know, so... It's like how how do you translate that so that it's a still very vivid kind of reality, you know, for her witness, with, without necessarily getting that outright gross, um, because again, you know, how I mean, how many cancer patients, how many cancer survivors do we have in our assemblies, you know, who who bring that experience? in uh, in a pretty new way uh, you know as uh, cancer treatment has advanced recently so how do we keep her story and I hope you don't get all kinds of messages saying what is he talking about that wasn't Saint Catherine um <laughs> but, you know, whoever it was the you know the the point remains that you know we we need to keep the the the, the The witness of the saints, uh, very fervent and very vivid, uh, for for today, but you know, in a way that can be received as well as sung Hmm. by by a congregation today.
2: Mm -hmm. Well,
0: that sounds wonderful. I'll be looking forward to that one at the convention.
1: I'm going to be the accompanist. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, if I, if I, if I, because I mean, really, Jay Michael Thompson is the guy on this topic. Um, you know, so if I do, if I do nothing else but accompany some of the hymns, uh, it will be a well done, good and faithful servant moment for me. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I'm happy to contribute whatever I can.
0: Well, either way, whether it's you or, like you said, Jay Michael, um, it will be a great testament again to circling back where we started, which is the power of words, as we've discussed yeah. today. So, I mean, are there any closing thoughts that you have on the power of words?
1: Well, uh, any closing thoughts I might have would know, we would be here an extra hour. Um, <laughs> you know, the one of the I don't know mantras I keep before me is more it's more a recollection of the opening of john's gospel in the beginning was the word Hmm. and that being an echo of genesis that whether you look at the first creation account where everything came into being because god spoke God's breath, that spirit, that wind, that ruach Elohim that was moving on the face of the water, God spoke and creation came to be. And more directly in the second account, God didn't speak, but God gave us the very divine breath to animate us, to you know, sing praise and to be of service to others, and to spread the gospel, and to carry on that life of the Holy Spirit.
0: Wow. Well, I think <laughs> put a stamp in that. I think we're the, that's right. a that's a perfect perfect way to end. I uh, I thank you so much for your time today, Alan. Well, and, completely
1: uh, my pleasure
0: even from myself, from my my perspective, I will definitely be opening my hymnal a little bit differently this weekend. So thank you.
1: Then my work here is done.
2: (laughs)
0: Thanks so much to Alan for his time today. For more information on this episode as well as the video version of this podcast, check out the show notes of this episode at ministrymonday.org. The recording of Lord Who Throughout these 40 Days was produced by Oregon Catholic Press. and the theme music for this episode was produced by Erin Schaus. Today's episode of Ministry Monday was produced by me, Amanda Bruce. That's it for today. With the Spirit's gifts empowering us for the work of ministry, thanks for listening. Have a great week. Have a blessed Holy Week, and we'll see you back here on Ministry Monday.